Okay, so we jump back into our series, The Hidden Hand of God. We are going through the book of Ruth. So why, why do we call it Hidden Hand of God? Unlike many other books in, in the Bible, we don't see God speaking or doing something out of the ordinary, something miraculous. We just see him in everyday life through the characters in the book of Ruth. And I've been learning quite a lot going through this book. And today we are in chapter 2, almost the midpoint of the story. So far, we have seen... Okay, let me walk back and start from the beginning. The story starts with Elimelech, his wife, um, Naomi, and their two sons going to a different country because they were starving in Israel. They go to a nearby country called Moab, where they could find some food. But the story takes an unfortunate twist. All the men in the family die while they are in Moab. The father dies first, the sons die. But they got married before they died. Unfortunate. So we have three widows in the story, not knowing what to do. Naomi hears there's food back in her hometown, so they decide to go back. She tries her best to convince her daughters-in-law, go back to your homes, there's no hope for you in Bethlehem, you'll be foreigners, you'll be widows, not much of life back there. But Ruth clings to, to Naomi with a hesed love, with a steadfast love, and even when she knows uh, there's nothing left for her back in Bethlehem, she sticks with Naomi. And we saw how f- that love looks like, the steadfast love, and how God loves us with the steadfast love. When they come back to Bethlehem, it's time for harvest. Food is back, people are harvesting what they planted. It's a, um, time for barley harvest. And she tells her mother-in-law, Ruth tells Naomi, let me go pick up some leftovers from the field so that we can have something to eat. We are starving, we don't have food, we are poor. We have land, but there's no one to plant for us, or sow for us, and so we don't have food, let me go. And that's where we were last week, and we saw the hand of God moving through and his providence and how he provides. And this week... We are, we are in the field, the harvest is going ahead, women going behind them, uh, tying bundles, and Ruth behind them, picking up leftovers, what she can get from the harvesting. So she meets Boaz. We were introduced to Boaz last week, but she meets Boaz, and that's what we're reading today. So in, in those times, people lived in villages, for security, for safety, and they are all related to each other, like they're tribal, so they know each other. And their fields would be outside the towns or villages. The villages are typically 100 or so in size. And it would be kilometers away. They would have to walk out of their safety, go harvest, bring back food, and so on. And in warm countries like Israel, people start working early. Same in India. You would start off, if, it's, if you're living in a farming community, you would start early, four or five. And 
then you would take an afternoon break and then continue working to escape the heat of the day. And that's what's happening. They go early in the morning outside their town, harvest, do all the agricultural activities, and come back in the evening. So that's what Ruth has done. She has gone out early in the morning. She has been working really hard, picking up whatever she can from the field. And that's where we are. I'm going to read from Ruth, chapter 2. from verse 8 onwards. There it is. I'm reading from the NIV. So Boaz said to Ruth, Boaz is meeting Ruth for the first time here, my, my daughter, listen to me. Boaz is older than Ruth. He's of maybe Elimelech's, her father-in-law's generation. And he calls, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done, may you be rich, richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine. Wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, she offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some leftover. And she got up to glean. Boss gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth cleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had got gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. It's about 13 kilograms. She carried it back to town. She's coming back from the field to the town now, carrying 13 kilograms of grains on her back. And her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, the man is a close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. 
Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it'll be good for you, my daughter, to go with, the, go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's look to the Lord in prayer before we go on. Our Father, our God, we come to you. We pray that your hidden hand that goes out with us throughout our lives every day in and out, that your hand would be with us today, this morning, as we look into your scriptures, you would open our eyes to see you and your plan for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this story is remarkable in many ways. First, Ruth is getting out of her comfort zone, of, out of her safety zone, risking her own safety. She's a foreigner. She can be harmed. You can see Boaz and uh, Naomi being concerned about her safety. But she, nevertheless, wants to provide for the family, wants to provide for Naomi. She is hardworking, 13 kilograms of grain, working the whole day, picking leftovers and carrying it back to the town, walking many kilometers. And then we see a generous relative boss who goes out of his way to help someone in need, someone poor. It's beautiful to see these characters reflect who God made them to be, images of God, and reflecting the character of God. So much we can learn from it. What do you, uh, when, it, when you read, what, what do you think stands out? For me, it was Naomi getting excited when she sees Ruth come back home. Oops, I'm sorry, I didn't <laughs> click through this when I read, but hope you heard well. <laughs> um, I had all the text here. I think this is the key to the passage, and this is the turning point in the story, when she knows where she gleaned, where she picked leftovers. What do you think got her excited? Is it all the greens she brought home? Oh, we won't have, we won't have to be hungry now. She has brought us a lot of greens. Oh, do you think it is having a generous relative who has a heart to take care of them? that they don't have anyone in their home, any males or any men in their home to take care of them. But what gets her excited is the fact that there's a redeemer for them. There's a relative who is close to them and wants to take care of them, or who could take care of them. They're not redeemed yet. And that's what gets her excited. Oh, you went with Boaz, and she, he's a close relative of ours. Redemption is something that we see throughout the Bible, throughout God's story. And many times we use it interchangeably with salvation and so on. But what is redemption? 
or who is a redeemer? Let's go back a few centuries from the story when the forefathers, forefathers of Elimelech, Jacob, he was going through a similar famine, but God leads them to Egypt where they flourish. His children become a nation, but they are enslaved by the Pharaoh. They become slaves. They are oppressed. And they can't rescue themselves. They are kind of stuck in Egypt being slaves. And God appears and spectacularly saves them. And he calls that redemption. The Bible calls that redemption. And that's what redemption is. Saving someone who cannot, who cannot rescue themselves, who, who don't have the power to save themselves. Someone more powerful comes and rescues them. That is what the Bible calls redemption. And the God who redeemed Israel, when he gave the law to them, the law of Moses, he baked this into the law. The law reflects the lawgiver. And in the law, we see redemption. In Numbers 25, it's all, the chapter is everything about redemption, redeeming land, redeeming close relatives who can't save themselves if someone is poor and sells themselves off as slave. There's instructions for close relatives to go and redeem them. And that's what we see here. Naomi getting excited about, oh, we have a close relative, or we have close, many close relatives, but there's a man with a heart to redeem, a man with a heart to follow God's law, to redeem his close relatives. And this possibility of change in their status from being poor and being at the mercy of others to being redeemed brings hope to Naomi and Ruth. If you would um, look in your Bibles, you would find a word before the word redeemer here. And in IV, it's guardian. Is there something else in your Bibles? Some other word? Some other word? And I read guardian. Yes, we doesn't have any word before that. I checked. Kinsman. Yeah. A close relative. Kinsman. What does kinsman mean? Oh. It, it just means a close relative or someone who's close enough, a cousin or someone who has an obligation to save, who's like them. And this is what God does in the Bible. He becomes akin to us. He becomes our kinsman to save us from our sin. Jesus, the Son of God, Though he was equal with God, he did not consider that something to be grasped, grasped, but came down to save us, to save us from our sins. He took on flesh, and Paul puts this beautifully in his letter to Philippians. It reads like this, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's where our redemption begins. God becoming our kinsman. And that's how he starts our redemption. Paying for our sins on the cross. This um, helps me to see uh, the story of God in four steps. I don't, know, I don't remember now where I read it, but it gives me a good mental model to think about the story. It looks like this. God created all of us, but we messed up the fall, and we are not able to rescue ourselves. We are powerless to do that. We have sinned against the Almighty. But he comes down and redeems us. Not just that. He is taking us to a new creation where he's going to make everything new, where he's going to redeem everything. And that's what Jesus began at the cross, by giving us redemption, paying for our sins, redeeming us from our fall. But it doesn't end there, as I said. As we go to the end of the scriptures, the book of Revelation, this is what we see. Look, God, um, let me get this. Uh, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will, will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older things, older order of things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And this is God's story. The redemption that started at the cross coming to fulfillment here in the new creation. And that's what we live for and that the hope we live for, Naomi had a hope to live for, a hope for redemption, and we live for a hope, a hope that God is going to make everything new, and everything is going to be redeemed by Jesus. Can we rescue ourselves? I remember when I was a kid, maybe around 12 or 13, I remember playing with friends close to church. We were playing cricket. It's not much of space, it's more like street cricket. And I played something I thought was a good shot. But as soon as I played, I heard a crash. I broke one of the church windows. Terrible. And before the, before the adults could get to know anything about this, the kids got into huddle. How can we fix this <laughs> before they get to know? But there's no way to fix windows if it's 10-year-olds or 13-year-olds. That's how we are. Like, when we sin, we sin against the creator of the world who is holy, who is totally majestic, and we are sinning against, his, against him and his creation. When we sin against each other, we are sinning against people who are created in the image of God. 
Can we fix it ourselves? No. It's only God who can redeem that. God who can rescue us from our mess. No matter what you believe in life, or whatever religion you believe, or no religion, you need to, if you're sincere, you need to, I think, think about these things. We know we have things around us. It came to be somehow. Either it's created or came by chance. Fall. We know life is messed up. We see that in relationships. We see that in, in the world. War, famine, hunger. How does that come to be? And how do we fix it? Is it by thinking well, reading well, eating well, exercising well, or by being religious, praying certain number of times a day, or reading Bible two times a day, or, or scripture? Will that fix things? Um, no matter what we think life is, or what, no matter what our worldview is, these are some answers we need to have, and for us, as God's children, God gives us this answer. It's his story. He is fixing things. He is redeeming creation to be something new. And he calls us to be part of that, and that's what gives us hope in this life, this hope of redemption. We are like Ruth, powerless, hopeless, nothing for the future, a widow without a man to support in that culture. Not much they can get along in life, but the hope of redemption hope of Boaz coming into her life, changes her life. From this point in the story of Ruth, everything changes. This is the story of Ruth. In the coming chapters, we'll see after the harvest, Naomi gets Ruth ready to approach Boaz and request for redemption. And in the final chapters, we'll see that this redemption is done. And this is the turning point in the story, what we just read. And Jesus coming and dying for us is the turning point of the history, history of the world. He redeems. He takes us back into, into, into eternity to be with him, into the new creation. And that's why, since it is God's story and it is his doing, Peter writes like this in his letter, by his great mercy, he gave us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, does that mean once we are redeemed, everything is going to be fine? No problems in life? Everything is going to be happy? Maybe not. Um, we are in a process of being redeemed, and that's why we read in Romans. Whenever we read in, uh, in the New Testament about hope, it always, almost always comes together with rejoicing or joy or singing and so on. And that's why Paul writes like this in his letter to the Romans. We rejoice in the hope of glory, a hope of God's glory. Um, hope of God's glory. Not only this, but we also rejoice in suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance, character, and character, hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who 
was given to us. Even in suffering, even when things aren't going well, we get to rejoice because of the Holy Spirit giving to us and because of this hope that God has given us, this hope of redemption. I've been talking about hope, but what is hope? Is it a nice feeling to have in life? That everything will be good tomorrow? That everything is going to, be, going to work out tomorrow? That's optimism. Oh, is it wishful thinking? That's the way we use it normally in our generation, in our world. Oh, I hope my team wins. Oh, oh, maybe I hope we get to sleep through the night without kids waking up. <laughs> well, good luck with that. <laughs> oh, maybe I wish it doesn't rain here in Gothenburg tomorrow. <laughs> good luck, good luck with that also. <laughs> that's that's where we use hope. Uh, our hope is based on us or the circumstances around us or the people around us and so on. But not so the biblical hope because it's hope of God's glory. The hope is anchored on God. It's because of what he does or who he is. It flows out of his goodness from his character. That's our foundation for hope. And that's why we can be sure of what he promises. Or we can live this life with this hope of redemption, being sure that he will accomplish what he started. And that's our hope. The story of Ruth, it starts with death, famine, things are hope, hopeless. And they're living in a terrible time, the time of judges, when people thought, did whatever they thought was right. I tried reading the book of Judges last week and I couldn't finish it. It's so terrible. It's like watching a horror movie. People killing each other, brothers killing each other. Violence and hatred. And this story happens during that time. But the story of Ruth ends with joy, with singing, with new life, with the hope for the future that everything is not over for the kingdom of Israel. It's the same with us. Jesus, he is the midpoint and end point of God's story, the story of redemption. All our understanding of life and scripture, our hope is based on his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming back to make everything new. And our hope is anchored, steady, and safe on this hope. If you haven't tasted this hope, can I encourage you to draw close to God, close to Jesus, our kinsman, our redeemer, and experience his love, his redemption, his hope. But if you're living a life enjoying this hope, 
my prayer is that we as a church would increase in this hope and our lives every day would be fueled by this hope, this joy, this love, that we are part of God's story of redemption and one day soon we are going to be with him in his new creation. We're going to break bread, um, join in Lord's table. And that is the Lord's table, breaking bread, taking part of the communion, drinking wine. It's, it's declaring the redemption of God, declaring his story, his sacrifice for us on the cross. In First Corinthians, where Paul speaks about Lord's table, he says like this, In chapter 11, verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim what happened, the beginning of the story of redemption, till he comes, till he completes his redemption, his story of redemption. And we get to be part of this hope of this journey, and when we break bread today, take communion, we are declaring this hope, we are participating in this hope of redemption. And if it's your first time putting your hope in Christ, in the redemption he gives, you're welcome to participate, but we would like to pray with you after this, you're welcome to, to take but, Come to us, and we, we, would, we would be happy to pray with you. Before we go to communion, shall we all stand up? And can you come up, Al, please? We're going to read something together from Westminster Catechism. Um, catechism, our resources developed for training in the church. It, it's question and answer format. And we're going to read this. What is our... Only hope in life and death. That's for the first question in this, uh, sorry, it's Heidelberg Catechism that I've picked over here. And we'll, I'll ask the question and then we'll read this together and then go ahead and take part of the communion. Ready? The question is, what is your only hope in life and death, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from all the power of death. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life, makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Amen.